0: There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another, and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind.
1: Your hosts in England and Sweden. Matthew Russell and Bolt Christmas. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah, baby Carl Carl Sagan. Carl, Carl Sagan Lynn. Sagan. You've you've, on, you've only you've only dished out one of the big cards in the old quote Bam, world. Have that. I thought that was uh, particularly appropriate in these troubled times.
0: Mm, absolutely.
1: We've got a big long interview which is absolutely totally Just- genius about astro <laughs> astrogeology. Is that what we're gonna call it? Planetary geology. Astro- Planetary
0: yeah. science, geophysics, all the, all the like GCC science subjects mushed into one beautiful thing.
1: And I will say one thing that I, I obviously, over the years, we've made lots of jokes about Ragosin and, and found it funny, but now I kind of listen back to them and go, "I don't really find Ragosin a funny in remotely anymore." Absolutely. I think yeah. it's,
0: context has uh, changed.
1: The context has changed, so don't ever listen to my old episodes and realize and try <laughs> Never, and put it and try and put it into context. But yeah, he's just not funny. He's a nasty piece of work and not not fitting for the spa- not fitting for space because the one the one thing that I do know is that when you speak to Helen Sharman or you spoke or I spoke to Mike Fole or any of the astronauts that spent time with Russians on the International Space Station, you know they treat these people as their friends and love them. So it's not the Russian people, mm. it's something terrible has happened. Absolutely.
0: So Absolutely. Truly deal more kindly with one another, as Carl Sagan said.
1: Yeah, and just remember we're we're sharing this pale blue dot and this is this is it this is all we've got. Ah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah.
0: is which is a a perfect segue into what we're talking about today because we're talking Earth versus Venus versus Mars Mar- blah. Earth versus Venus versus Mars in an epic slam-down showdown. What is the best planet to live on? I think you know the answer, but you might be surprised.
1: <laughs> you might be surprised. Who comes in second? You won't <laughs> yeah, exactly. believe what happens at number three. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. two planets <laughs> that scientists don't want you to know about. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, dear. Um, yeah, so who's our, who's our guest? It's another one that you you bagged for us, Lynn. Thank I've been you.
0: I've been headhunting. I've been sneaking around in the shadows and and sort of <laughs> poaching all the best guests. If you know me and would like to be on the show, please get in touch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Paul is uh, originally from Ireland, but is now based in the US and he is at I believe the Washington University. <laughs> you won't believe what state it's in. We'll get to that part. Um, So he is uh, researching um, planetary geology, I think is the best uh, title, comparative planetary geology, where you specifically compare the surfaces and the interiors as well of different um, planets. Uh, I think mainly in our solar system, I know that he is very active on Twitter and shout out to his Twitter account, because uh, you should all follow him. He is at the planetary guy, that's Paul Byrne, um, and he posts a lot of really cool pictures. Uh, specifically, um, finding some specific gems from Mars rover pictures. I mean, they post so many Mars rover pictures; it's crazy. Uh, but actually, finding some really good ones, uh, you sort of have to troll through it, and Paul does that.
1: <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've definitely stumbled across his account before and liked and retweeted some of his crazy pictures and and things. But yeah, I absolutely I, I loved this interview. I think he's a he's a really really brilliant um, communicator as well. And and he debunked several things that I thought I knew <laughs> exactly. with I thought I knew and it turns you out You won't no. believe
0: what the moon looks like and things <laughs> like that. Yeah. So yeah, there's exactly. going to be a lot of uh, sort of mm. BuzzFeed style headlines
1: <laughs> in yeah. today's interview. Yeah, and he's
0: It's a really fascinating topic as well. Um you know, we've had uh, a talk about astrobiology Um, And we've talked a lot about sort of planetary stuff, um, at least in the episodes I've been in, and I think the thing that comes up time and time again is the importance of interdisciplinary work and that you kind of can't explore the entire universe without accounting for both physics and chemistry, and geology, and biology, and all of these different subjects. And then how they interface with each other as well makes them kind of into not something greater than the sum of their parts.
1: Yeah, I kind of got to the end of this one and realized that I need, because I didn't do geography, even at GCSE, I think I, <laughs> yeah. I, think I need to do... Um, yeah. I think what I are need to learn. Anyway? Yeah, exactly. I need to learn about plate Hills. tectonics. I hear the phrase plate tectonics all the time, but yeah. I'm, I'd be blown if I'd know what it is. <laughs> but uh, it's obviously pretty goddamn important. Yeah, he's yes, yeah he's exactly. a he's a proper doctor of planetary geology from and he got it at Trinity College in Dublin. So. It's so, super a, super cool. Yeah, so that's a very very cool institution as well. So
0: So I actually know Paul because uh, me and Paul uh, were teaching a masters level course um, at Uppsala University um remotely uh, in these uh, pandemic times or at least the We're still in a pandemic, right? That's the consensus. Yeah,
1: well I uh, think it's becoming yeah. endemic now, isn't it?
0: And 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 end game endemic, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, at least at least last year um so there is actually a course Um, at Uppsala University in Sweden, called Exploring Space Resources, where we talk about um, the resources of space. It's a sort of geo-based course, um, but it is a little bit about, you know, say you found a bunch of diamonds in an asteroid. Can I go and just take it? And then both from a sort of geology perspective and from an astrophysics perspective and from a legal perspective. Um, And it was a really fun course. It's being offered again, this upcoming autumn um and i don't know if it will be offered online actually but possibly so <laughs> stay tuned and, and and look it up because no, me I and paul have to, were oh, two of the teachers
1: i might have to do that myself
0: yeah to just to come talk. talk to me and paul
1: <laughs> yeah no exactly it'll be quite fun <laughs> although everyone go ah, a bit uh, he's already knows the teachers he's going to be he's going to get <laughs> yeah now. don't
0: worry I listened to your podcast episode I don't need to take this course <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah I yeah this is this is a really 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 good interview so I, I just I'm just itching I'm just itching to get to it so
0: we just well, started
1: so I so just started. Go on, I dare you. I could say. You're listening to the Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. We are joined on the podcast by Paul Byrne, who is an Associate Professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at the Washington University in St. Louis.
2: Yes, <laughs> in the Midwest and
1: not in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> perennially confuses people. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Excellent. And I'm joined just as last week, with Lynn. Hi, Lynn.
0: Hello! I'm back, back, <laughs> back again with a vengeance. Well, we're, t-
1: well, we're talking about planets. So I can't keep you away, really, can we?
0: You really, I'm clawing at the metaphorical door here. I, I'm not going to let you do a, a podcast about planets without getting involved.
1: <laughs> so, Paul, tell us a little bit about planets. Okay, so where we live on one. Oh, they're ah, interesting. Oh,
0: wait, really? Slow down. Yes. Let me take notes.
1: <laughs> let me
2: start over. Okay, so we live on... Yeah, they're really interesting. And... Um, They have some basic things in common but ultimately all a planet is is a means of turning dust and gas and ice into an object it's a large chemical processing engine that's what a planet is and in some cases and we don't really understand how many or why you end up with trees and squirrels and blue sky (laughs) Um, but if you take venus for example we think it started off essentially the same and you have self-cleaning oven temperatures And precious the equivalent of nine hundred meters under the ocean on Earth. So we don't really know all the the details yet as to how you might start off with relatively similar stuff that ends up vastly different. But we're learning.
1: We're learning. Now tell me something. Could could we scare people and say there is a chance that if you push Earth too far, you could end up with a Venus-style scenario? I actually, I think
2: it's probably almost certainly that Venus, that Earth will turn into Venus. I think it's probably. Oh no. Yeah. Um, Okay. so here's what won't do it. Human driven (laughs) climate change will not do it. There is, as I understand it, there is there are not enough fossil fuels in the ground that we could access and burn fast enough to drive the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere up to trigger what's called a runaway greenhouse, which is the phenomenon we think affected Venus, which is the idea that because we have greenhouse gases, that's what CO2 is, water is a greenhouse gas. Methane is greenhouse gas, but these are gases that basically traffic long wavelength radiation from emitting back into space, and so there's a net increase in temperature over time. We're, the reason we think that has happened for Venus, actually, we don't know why. And some of the most foundational questions for Venus we have is we don't know why, and we don't know when. And actually, for Venus, we have two leading hypotheses, and this gets exactly to your question. Basically, one possibility is that Venus was always ruined. It was always a hellhole, (laughs) literally in figures. (laughs) That it started off sufficiently close to the sun, that all the heat that planets we think have anyway when they form, there's so much energy involved. There's so much heat from impacts and the very act of being born in the first place. That Venus was too close to the sun, getting too much solar radiation to ever cool down enough to be able to condense what we assume was a steam-rich atmosphere, we assume that for a variety of reasons, to the point where you could have things like liquid water on the surface. And that was purely because of how close it was to the sun. That's that's scenario A. In which case, Earth clearly escaped that because we were farther away, sunlight wasn't as bright, and therefore, we were okay. Okay. Um, the problem is the sun is brightening through time; it's getting mm. brighter and, and putting in more radiation. That's what these stars do until, and that's be, that's while it's still on the main sequence. That's before it starts to go into nova. And so the thinking is that within the next few hundred million years, the temperature will slowly inexorably start to rise, or just continue to rise, separate to what humans are doing. Right? Humans are we are not going to destroy the planet. We are going to destroy our own civilization if we keep going, because we've evolved as a species in the last since the Ice Age, at least technologically and societally in in very clement conditions. Um, Earth has not always been as clement as it is now. But at the same time, uh, Venus, the the brightening star is going to change things quite a bit and the surface temperature will get hotter and hotter. And eventually the thinking is it will trigger what's called a moist greenhouse effect where suddenly there'll be a lot more water vapor in the atmosphere, and that that sort of exacerbates things, becomes a positive feedback. And eventually then you reach this triggering point where you go into this runaway greenhouse. And so we can reasonably expect that, say, within about a billion years or so, although we don't exactly know precisely when, the oceans will boil and we'll eventually lose our oceans, Uh, That will shut down plate tectonics, which is actually the dominant mechanism Earth has of cooling and regulating its climate. And then certainly within the next billion and a half years or so, Earth will probably be functionally sterile, at least all but perhaps some small little refuges in the subterranean environment or maybe at high altitudes in the clouds. But basically, yes, the sun is going to turn and certainly by five billion years time when the sun is sloughing off its outer shells and it's turned to a red giant, whether it swallows Earth or not, it's going to completely sterilize the planet and burn it to a crisp, happy days. Right. So we are definitely going to look like <laughs> Venus in about a billion years, just by virtue of what the sun does. That's what stars do. Only a billion. Yeah.
1: Oh, we're yeah. fine. Ooh. We've
0: got time.
1: No, but that, that's, you know, but also I was, I was hoping much. to live to a billion and fifty. 50. Well you could, but you would be watching least. this from your space orbital or
2: whatever weird oh, yeah, that, you know, yeah. ethereal
1: plane we've evolved to, right?
2: This is of course is if you decide to not inject the sun with more energy. I mean, let's not, I don't know what technologically you could do to stop this. I'm sure you could do something. <laughs> um, but naturally, left alone, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. And and it and it makes the case that Earth has not always been the way it is now. And that's even if you study mm. geology as I do um most certainly much of the rocks we have access to are rocks that go back the last few hundred million years complex life has been on on earth as we have it in the rock record for a little bit over half a billion years that's an extremely long period of time especially when you consider that modern humans are a few hundred thousand years old but it's not that long for a planet like 500 million years is a ninth the age of a planet right so for a long time earth was not habitable at least we don't think it was or at least we don't know for sure that it
0: was yeah
2: and it's Actual habitable conditions have changed quite a bit through time. And so maybe billion years, you know, it's kind of sad to think the planet may have a life expectancy of 10 billion years, but it may only be earth-like for two or 3 billion of those years. It's not guaranteed any more time than that. And that kind of speaks to a broader issue. The fact that habitability is probably a a, a matter of timing as much as anything else. A
0: a fleeting Mm -hmm. thing.
2: Yeah, probably it is. And we can come back to that. Now I want to come back to the first part of my question, which is, is is it possible we could turn to Venus? So I said the scenario one, is that Venus started off ruined, and we're <laughs> going to go that way. No problem. Yeah. Scenario two is more interesting, and it's kind of more catastrophic, and it's my preferred one, but we don't have <laughs> evidence <laughs> either, way, either way for the two. Scenario two, B, is that basically Venus, yes, it was closer to the sun, and yes, there's a lot of accretional energy and radiogenic energy, and it was hot very early on, but it was able to somehow, possibly through a hemisphere-scale cloud, it was somehow able to cool down enough. And once the thinking goes, it cools down enough that you condense that steam, which we presume most planets had a steam-rich atmosphere early on, water steam. Uh, If you condense that stuff out, you can start to pond that steam into lakes and seas, and you start to make an ocean, and you start to get an atmosphere. It's probably a CO2-dominated atmosphere, lots of nitrogen, probably a little bit of methane. There's certainly no free oxygen, because that happened much later. But it's relatively okay. Liquid water is stable at the surface. Things are modestly climate. And the idea holds then that once that happens and if Venus is able to get out and survive those, those tumultuous early years, it probably is going to have to develop a way to regulate its climate temperature. And the way Earth does that is through plate tectonics. There's a thing we call the carbon silicate cycle. You lock carbon into physical form in minerals, and then you subduct those minerals through plate tectonics into the interior. And that's a way of drawing down carbon from the atmosphere in a way that sequesters it and prevents it building up to the point where you trigger a runaway greenhouse. So it's possible if Venus was able to escape these early days, it too probably had something similar to plate tectonics that allowed it to regulate its temperature by the sequestering somehow of carbon and other greenhouse gases. And then something changed. And that's where we reach a point where there's really only a few planetary phenomena we can invoke to explain the possibility that you take potentially a climate world and turn it into Venus. And the best thing, this is the basis of some modeling work that's come out in the last two years or so. And we can test all this. But what's really interesting is that there at least is the possibilities, models allow for the possibility that catastrophic volcanic eruptions that happen to coincide with one another. So we've, we've had... Massive catastrophic volcanic eruptions in Earth's history. The most dramatic mass extinction in Earth history that we can see recorded in the fossil record is the Permian-Triassic boundary PT extinction event, which is at least largely, if perhaps not wholly, because of massive volcanic eruptions in Siberia, in what is now Siberia. Uh, Many other mass extinction events, there's five large ones, mass extinction events recognized in the rock record. Most of them are associated with some amount of volcanism. Some of them are also associated with impacts like the KT boundary, the, the the Cretaceous. Now that the Tertiary boundary, where um, the dinosaurs got wiped out, the, at least the Saurian dinosaurs got wiped out. I, <laughs> I learned. I was told recently. In fact, the A dinosaurs did not go extinct. The Avian dinosaurs remained and evolved, but the Saurians went extinct, probably. And sharks. <laughs> um, but the idea is that you know certainly volcanoes can be. They can be givers of life. They can produce fertile soil, and not people live on volcanoes. And the volcanic soil is very rich, nutrient rich, but they can also destroy. And they can do so at modestly small scale. So we saw the Tonga eruption, which is catastrophic, instead of blue, blue a tsunami across the Pacific basin, um, Pinatubo, Krakatua, Mount St Helens. But you can have planet scale effects by and sustained planet scale effects if you have what are call large igneous provinces. And that's what Siberia is, it's what the Deccan traps in India are, which some people have linked to the, the KT boundary. Um, but the point is that when these eruptions go off, volcanoes produce a lot of gases, they produce water and they produce sulfur dioxide, which is an ice house gas. And they produce CO2, which is a greenhouse gas. And so volcanoes over the short term, over the year, the month to year time frame, can actually cool the planet because of SO2, but it doesn't last that long and the atmosphere gets broken down by sunlight. CO2 lasts a lot longer. And really what it comes down to is that you end up with a situation where you can dump a lot of CO2 very quickly, potentially faster than you can draw it down again. And so there is at least a a modeled scenario under which Venus survives the early days, manages to be Earth-like for a time, and then has several large igneous provinces go off at the same time. Now, we do not understand what governs these things, or necessarily what controls when or where they go off. They aren't really, obviously, associated with plate boundaries. Some people have suggested there's some kind of link there. They appear to be relatively regular. Most of them are modest enough. They produce local extinctions, but they also... Produce new land, or they can produce a whole pile of new nutrients to the sea or the water. So they're part of a natural life cycle of Earth. But if he, if you happen to have several at one time, which potentially could happen, and it might be an entirely stochastic thing, an entirely random thing, then it's it's not beyond the realms of possibility that Venus might have been Earth-like, meaningfully Earth-like, and then it was subject to the eruption of several of these aridities provinces simultaneously. And that's a push into a runaway greenhouse effect. And if that's true, and I'm I'm placing if upon if upon if, these are all model <laughs> scenarios that, that we need to go to Venus to test. rocks we're, of we're, ifs. we're going to do, exactly. Yeah, mm. this, this, the rock basement of this model is very, very deep. <laughs>
0: yeah. But it
2: does mean that there is, it, A, is something we can test. But B, it, it kind of speaks to the fact that it may not be so straightforward to understand the life cycle of the history of the planet if something like this can happen. And it may be that perhaps Venus was unlucky to have had several of these go off at one time and overwhelm its ability to to draw down the carbon. Or perhaps Earth has been lucky that at least so far it hasn't had these. We don't know. And so that's one of the things that we're going to test with the set of missions that NASA and the European Space Agency picked last summer that actually, for the first time in 30 years, the United States is going to go back to Venus, equipped with the technology to actually answer or start to answer some of these questions.
1: In that second scenario... Earth could quite rapidly become like Venus if you had this incredibly unlucky. Set rapidly, of, with
0: strong quotes. Yeah, rapidly, G- but rapid, like geologically, yeah. but
1: geologically <laughs> rapidly, absolutely
2: could. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, the, the definition of, um, I mean, it changes sometimes, but my understanding, of the current definition of large igneous province, is uh, one hundred thousand square kilometers of resurfacing or hundred thousand cubic kilometers of erupted lava in in a relatively short period of time. I think ten million years. You know, that's that's not a crazy amount per day it, compared to like normal rates it is but you know you could go and you could visit it but yeah the 10 million years isn't is extremely long for for a species a species could rise and fall
1: in the time one of these things is going off what, what what does one of these things look like if i if i was to visit one what 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 kind of thing would i see today then if i um is or, it like so-
0: the icelandic one i mean you there was uh earlier this year there was this uh, uh icelandic volcano and it was so cool to see those images of people like mm-hmm. just kind of taking pictures of the lava as it's rushing yep. towards them, but, you know, rushing as much as a slow moving yes. lava can rush. And, and
2: thankfully, that kind of lava typically moves relatively slow. In fact, it may destroy yeah. buildings and infrastructure, but typically you can, it doesn't kill many people. You can walk away from it. <laughs> you can walk away from it. Now, as in case you can. There are times, there's yeah. footage from the 2018 eruption on Kilauea Sometimes Mm. lavas, lavas are actually very good between when they're flowing on relatively flat land. They're very good at basically building up levees. They build up margins. Think of the things you have in bowling alleys. If you suck at bowling, you put those things up like little buffers. And, and lava can do that, and it's sort of thermally insulated, and that means the interior flow can go really fast, like bullet train, right?
0: Fast. Like a funnel kind of. Yeah,
2: yeah, essentially. Now, uh, th- you know that that's contingent on a bunch of things too, and certainly if it's on a slope, yeah. it helps that it's going downhill a bit. Sure. Um, but yeah, but the thing in Iceland, no, the thing in Iceland is nothing, nothing volumetrically. <laughs> these things are pathetic. They look amazing, yeah. but these individual volcanoes never contribute much by way of like crustal volume. Whereas these sure. LIPs are big. So if you want to go see what they look like. And also the thing is, they they aren't, we think, we've never seen them erupt, thank God. But they're not really necessarily, at the beginning, they might be associated with individual discrete edifices. But most of the time, what they do is they produce vast plains of lava, which, by the way, separately but relatedly, is the dominant mode of volcanism on most planets. Most places, it's Mm. big plains of lava, it's not little of cones. But the point is that um, if you want to see what this looks like, go to the Deccan Traps in India. Traps is a word. I think it's a it's an Icelandic word used to describe the sort of staircase pattern of this stuff when it's eroded. I mean, there's right. lots of places. There's a the Columbia River Basalt in the northwest of the United States. There's the Kerguelen Plateau, which I've done work on. In fact, most ocean islands happen to be miniature versions of these. And the reason they're called traps is because the lava comes out in layers. Sometimes individual flows often as big packets of lava, yeah, and there could yeah. be there could be seasons or years between the next one. There are often what I call paleosols between them, which sure. you, sometimes you can see you know, grass and stuff, you can see seasons of growth and then the next packet of lava comes out. Because it's not like if it's erupting for a million years, Geologically, of course, it's nothing, but that's not like nothing in terms of time. So this thing could right, have worked for a right. while, and it might be another 10,000 years before the next one comes out, but integrated over a short period of time, it's a lot of lava and a lot of gas. But if you go to the Deccan Traps, for example, where you know, and you've got such a humid environment there, it is an awful lot of erosion, and you end up with these valleys kilometers deep, and you can see all the way down the, the, the walls of the valleys, this sort of stair- staircase or terraced pattern where you're eroding down through this stack of lavas in place geologically yeah. quickly same with the yeah. siberian traps which are the biggest uh, what we call sub-aerial meaning like on land under the air yeah. exposure of these things anywhere that i think anywhere on earth recognized on earth. Wow. and there's some really big ones on, on submarine ones on the ocean floor as well and the reason these things matter is a yeah they resurface a whole pile of land and you know they'll destroy forests and there'll be forest fires which of course can also contribute to putting uh, carbon to the atmosphere and soot and embers, which drive more forest fires. You see similar things with large impacts. But by far the most damaging thing these things do in terms of climate and ecosystem is the introduction of huge volumes of gas, CO2 to the atmosphere that are going to be, and, and water vapor that are both greenhouse gases. Injecting this stuff into the sea carbonates the sea. It turns the sea into carbonic acid or at the very least, it it decreases its pH. That has implications for things like little crawlies in the sea that build their shells out of calcium carbonate. They have a harder time the calcium carbonate compensation depth changes and the actual depth at which these things- Say that the, 10
0: times really fast. I,
2: I will not. <laughs> um, but 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 the, but the portion of the ocean where these things live, you know, is decreased. And so that has, a, you know, that puts a lot of pressure on, on the eco, ecological systems too. So these things can be really big deals. But, but if you saw them, you would see, you know, an eroded version is just stacks of lava going down thousands yeah. of meters.
0: So it's really more about the gas that's being released and that's having a lot... It's not that there's scary volcanoes like, oh no, we're all getting killed off by Vesuvian volcanoes. It's more that they're releasing gas that has a long-term impact.
2: Exactly. Vesuvius is a a particular volcano associated with a subduction zone. Those volcanoes typically happen to have uh, water-enriched melt or magma. And that typically makes that magma more explosive. And so actually typically Mm. with volcanoes associated with subduction zones, they tend to explode like the Hunga Tonga uh, eruption. Uh, uh, earlier and so in the case of Vesuvius yeah you Pyroclastic Ash think the movie Volcano uh, and the movie uh, Dante's Peak Um, Uh but the bottom Volcano is
0: is a good band name
2: it's an amazing band name but but, you know (laughs) as bad as they are they tend to have fairly local effects Mm. Spawning Volcano might might wipe out a city or might do a huge amount of damage to a forest so so how isn't
1: there yeah so how Yeah. why is there no disaster movie with these with these vast (laughs) with these tiny little ones like like big big lava you know because yeah it sounds well, also, like
2: it's- uh, two reasons i think one is um the imagination of hollywood r- writers um you know <laughs> there's no reason you couldn't have this but the other thing too is it is difficult to convey the idea that you could have a planet killing or at least a climate killing event that transcends i mean as bad as anthropogenic climate change is which is real and it's happening and it's us and we need to stop it as bad as that is yes that is not going to trigger the kind of thing we see that venus has undergone it may yeah. destroy, you know, half of the population of Earth's easy access to food and water security and housing, but it's not going to uh, sterilize the crust. Um, right. But at the same time, it is kind of hard to convey the idea that like, it also might happen on human time scales, very, very slowly.
0: Yeah.
2: You know, like I say, I you could be living for ten thousand years and be throughout that entire time only put out one percent of a large this province. So, in other words, you yeah. would consider this normal behavior.
0: Yeah. I'm always so blown away with both how much we don't know and how much we do know about the things like Mars and Venus like that. Because you know, my 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 naive understanding is that a lot of the things we know about the geological history of Earth is because we physically look at the rocks. You know, we drill and we yeah. see cleavages, and we, we you know we can see the sort of think uh, high school geo or geology chemistry textbook where you see the different layers of mm-hmm. the different rocks. But I mean how do we know all of these things about Venus and Mars? I know we have rovers that I guess drill but they can't be drilling deep enough to see the no. whole geological history of the planet. So how how do we how do we know this is it good guesses or Yeah, well
2: so that's a great question and and the bottom line is we don't really we have often <laughs> <Excellent>. consistent <laughs> internally consistent models, right? Yeah. We yeah. don't even know Earth's geological history all that well. Right, like we, say, right. we can drill, but but the, deep, the deepest we've ever drilled, I think the deepest hole was a Soviet drilled hole. I don't remember when, but I think it went down like seven miles, like 11 kilometers. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, in some it, places,
2: yeah. the cross is 40 kilometers deep. And then you get, to, you know, the yeah. mantle is always another... Two- 3,000 kilometers or something, okay.
0: I mean, it's interpretations, right? It's like a bit like reading um, ancient Greek poetry, we think that this is.
2: It is similar, and honestly, a lot of geology is sort of piecing together. One of the best skills you learn as a geoscientist is being able to take often totally disparate data sets that are often badly incomplete and trying to basically synoptically put them together and make sense of what you see. It's very hard to test some of these things. And certainly some of the, like the thing that kind of staggers me, and this is where other planets actually are really beneficial, Is that on Earth? When you have there's two kinds of crusts on Earth. There's continental crust, which is the stuff we live on, and there's oceanic crust. Continental crust, once you make it, pretty much stays around, but it gets reworked and covered in stuff, sediments, and lavas, and soil, and buildings. Roman coins. There's extremely very very few parts of it left. Right, their individual mineral grains is all the stuff of the original crust on Earth, the original continental crust that, that we think might have been present very early in the planet's life. Min- individual zircon grains we found in Australia. So we know virtually nothing. We have to infer an enormous amount about what Earth looked like. The oceans aren't any better the oldest oceanic crust on earth is about 200 million years old because that's how long it takes in the longest case for new crust to be made at what we call a spreading center where oceanic plate is made and it gets conveyed thanks to plate tectonics to what we call a subduction zone where it dives back in and helps bring a bunch of carbon with it and keep the planet regulated so the point is that most 95 percent of earth history is gone It's been buried Mm -hmm. or destroyed or eroded or otherwise inaccessible or subducted. So we have very, very little information about ancient Earth. And the cool thing about looking at other planets is, with the exception of Venus, which is complicated and and worth a whole episode on its own, in the case of (laughs) Mars and Moon and Mercury, some of the oldest crust in the solar system is still preserved because not that much happens there, relatively speaking. And certainly there are parts of Mars that are 4.7 billion years old. and for example, just to give you one obvious example that people can relate to, if you look at the moon, the full moon, I love how, Lynn, you just looked up. I don't know. Is the moon? I know it's nighttime. Is the moon up there right <laughs> now? Or was no, I just, I just, I just see up?
0: clouds. I'm in Sweden. Okay.
2: I don't know where the moon is. To you it might be below you. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so so think of the moon, right? And on the bit that we can see, and we can always see one side of the moon. It's tidally locked. It's a whole mm-hmm, conversation. Mm-hmm. There's darker bits and there's brighter bits. Now, first yes. off, I want to make the point this, and this is something I think a lot of people don't know. The moon is not bright. The moon looks bright, but the moon is basically the color of like coal or maybe dark charcoal, pencil the light stuff is that color really? I and the lava lighter. is even darker and the wow. reason it looks bright is because it has nothing it's competing with against the night sky but if That's you were to fair. put there's a, <laughs> there's a moon of saturn called enceladus which is made of ice many of the moons in the outer solar system have an ice covering an ice shell and its ice is so pure that it's albedo which is the amount of sunlight that it reflects is like more than 90 percent it's albedo is 0.9 something if you put enceladus at the same distance to earth at the distance to Earth, such that it was the same size in the sky as the moon, mm-hmm. it's much smaller than the
0: moon. Yeah. It
2: would be so bright at night that it'd be like being in a football stadium with floodlights. What? Oh, wow. We would have no darkness, basically, if we had that's a moon. That's my favorite darkness. fact of the day.
0: Yeah. What, oh, so, what's the albedo of the moon? Just ballpark.
2: It's 0. 0.3 or 0. 0.2 something. It's really? this big moon has been lying to you all the time, and the beautiful oh moon, look God. how bright it is. It's dark gray. <laughs> it's just that you're looking at it against like oblivion. That's why it looks duped. bright.
0: That's crazy. I mean, yeah. you know, I, yeah, I work with planets. So I, 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 I did not know that the moon was so. Bleak.
1: I, I, t- <laughs> I, I tell you what. That it, when you get when you see really nice astrophotography and they've they've mm-hmm. they've got that contrast on the moon yes. and it looks that kind of dark soily color. Uh huh. It's that's when it. That's when you c- kind of looks realistic. So I yeah. kind yeah, of guess exactly. that that's where.
0: Usually the moon gets the Kardashian treatment. It just looks. It, like it, yeah, it
1: just does. does <laughs> it does. And if you
2: look at the Apollo photographs, often like you see you Know the moon is relatively brightly lit, but and yeah. that, and people are like, Well, how it's fake because there's no stars? Like, well, the reason it's not oh, stars because your your exposure setting is such that if you saw the right, stars, right, right. the black the front would be black and mm-hmm. you wouldn't see the astronauts. <laughs> yeah, right. So it's yeah, camera that's seven. true
0: actually. When I think about the pictures of the astronauts on the moon, like they're sort of whitish. Yeah, they're bright. That is the, yeah, the moon yeah, is
2: yeah. not bright. And if you ask them you yeah. can listen to what they say on their transcripts, they're like, It's quite dark. You know, <laughs> and, but they also went to the to the to the side facing us during the lunar day, so that they would be right, able to right. communicate with Earth anyway, but that they, they could see where they're going. Yeah. Because you walk there's no atmosphere to refract or scatter light. So if you walk around a boulder into the shadow, it's pitch yeah. black until you get into it and you let your eyes adjust. Yeah, because there'll, there'll be some scattered light, but but not much. So, it,
0: so if you scoop up a, a lunar sample, put it in your pocket, and and go back home, and pull it out in your living room, like. What, you what stain it,
2: yeah it'll be It's something like why who dragged car- charcoal in here it's not quite that dark but it's dark <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's like, like concrete it's like kind of yeah yeah exactly yeah. it's not bright anyway so th- i'm bringing up the moon because despite the fact that it's dark we've been lying to you the whole time and um, it is it, it has darker splotches and right. they are what we call the lunar maria which is originally derived from the latin for the word sea hmm. i don't actually know if in real life anyone ever thought it was ocean, but they were named <laughs> for sea. So there's a sea of tranquility, sea of crisis, the sea of whatever. And the idea basically is that that stuff is lava, but the stuff around the, the rest of the moon, the lighter stuff is is a different kind of material. It doesn't really matter what it is. It's called flotation crust. We can get into that if you guys want. But the idea basically is that that darker stuff is lava. And there is a very good reason why many of the splotches are sort of quasi-circular, and that's because they are gigantic impact basins that stuff is flooded into. Now, the lava is younger than the basin. So it's not like the basin happened and then the lava formed. But the reason this is important is because there are some staggeringly huge impact basins on the moon. I mean, really, really big, you know, a thousand kilometer across basin. Basin so big that if you consider the curvature of the moon itself, the basin floor, which is flat, is actually curved. The gravity Mm. gradient is flat, but it is in fact curved because that's how big the the, the base it is. So Mercury has giant basins and Mars has giant impact basins and the Moon has giant impact basins. Now, Venus is a separate conversation. It's it's more complicated. But the point is that neither Venus nor Earth have today, but there's no reason to think that the Moon got whacked in these catastrophically giant impact events and somehow Earth didn't. And so what that tells us, for example, is you can look at a preserved record of early solar system history. When you look at the moon and you look at where those those lavas have ponded, those yeah. basins must have been on Earth, but they've been covered up, or buried, or healed, or subducted yeah. since then. So it's an example of you can look at very early Earth history by simply staring at the moon, in in a manner of speaking. And that's and I guess, what's real powerful about comparing planets.
0: Yeah, and I guess I I mean the moon surely formed from probably some impact event with Earth. So I guess they're also sort of geologically similar enough that you can anticipate that they would sort of act similarly
2: yeah, to, exactly. you know, being destroyed. <laughs> yeah, and that's actually something that came out of the Apollo mission. Because for there were four leading hypotheses for how the moon is, why the moon yeah. is the moon. And one of them is that it was captured. And it turns out that's yeah. actually really hard to explain. But one of the things that was really surprising was that we saw from the samples that the Apollo astronauts brought back is that chemically the moon is In some ways, identical to Earth. Yeah. Now, in many other ways, it's not. But there are some isotopes are the same. Sure. And that seems extremely unlikely, unless they were made of the same stuff originally. And that led to this idea that we have what's called the the, the giant impact hypothesis or giant collision hypothesis, that at some point, very early on in baby Earth, which was not smaller but but much younger and molten on the exterior, an object about the size of Mars that's called Theia smashed into it. And disrupted yeah. Earth and produced a huge ring of material. And ultimately, that ring coalesced to the moon. Mm. And most, most of the core of Theia merged with Earth's core to form what is now Earth. Um, th- this is still a hypothesis, but it's the best one to explain the data we have to hand. But it is worth saying briefly that, so we have this giant impact scenario for Earth that produces this big moon. Mercury, if you consider how big Mercury is, if you were to cut Mercury in half, the outer mm. rocky part, so the crust and the mantle together, is only about 420 yeah. kilometers. If oh, you wow. stand on the surface of Mercury, you get to the core 420 kilometers down. On Earth, it's like yeah. 3,500 kilometers. So most of, yeah. m- most of Mercury is core. It's li- molten liquid iron. Just a big... That's basically oh, what Mercury God. is, a big iron ball bearing wrapped in a thin blanket of rock. Yeah. yeah. It's, we don't really know why that is. And one possibility is that Mercury was originally bigger. And perhaps mm. it had a core more in proportion to what we see Mars and Earth have, and even the Moon. Mm. And something hit it very early on, or maybe multiple things hit it and stripped away yeah. an outer layer. Now that's just one possibility, mm. but that's mm. that's potentially giant impact happening there. Venus yeah. rotates backwards; it moves around the sun the same way we do, but it rotates on its own axis backwards. People have proposed a giant impact as responsible. Uranus is on its side; right, mm-hmm. its axial tilt is at ninety-eight degrees. Um, so it's pole, rotational pole faces, the suns, weird. And the upper the upper third of Mars topographically is lower than the rest of the planet. Yeah. And that has led to some people proposing the upper hemisphere of Mars is a single giant impact basin, the biggest in the solar system. So these are all hypotheses. We haven't established any of this for a fact, although I think the lunar hypothesis collision thing is probably the strongest one. But they yeah. all kind of speak to the possibility that not just did you ju- produce giant impact basins, but you really, really whacked planets very early on. <laughs> And, and this, the benefit of, of studying other planets and comparing them and contrasting them to, to, to each other and to Earth is that you start to build up this idea that what Earth is today is by no means reflective of what it was a billion years ago. Two billion years ago, certainly not what history was like early in the solar system, such that if we saw a photo of Earth in its infancy, we certainly wouldn't recognize it. It didn't have continents. Yeah. certainly didn't have them in the arrangement they have today. It had a... Parts of the surface were probably glowing. It had large impact bases. It may have had circular seas mm. where water had filled in these depressions, but it looked nothing like it did today. And I kind of speak, yeah. things are only a matter of timing, you know, that if you jump forward a billion years, Earth will look different again. It may not be blue anymore.
1: I, I'm, I'm right in saying that because NASA have got a mission out to Psyche, haven't they? And Psyche is another one of these yeah, that's right. potential planetary cores. That's right. Yeah, so Psyche we think is a metal-rich
2: asteroid. Now, the amount of metal that we that we think makes up Psyche 16 is it's not quite clear. The amount has been changing through time as people get more telescope time ahead of the mission. It's now yeah. possible because of course usually the measurements lead to kind of bounding estimates rather than a particular number. But it's certainly possible that it might be mainly metal, but it might be maybe half metal, half rock. But but our still our leading hypothesis is that yeah, it's a protoplanetary core. Uh, an object that got big enough that it was able to undergo a process we call differentiation, which is the same concept. As you imagine, the way I teach this is you take a test tube or or a beaker and you put sand and water in there and you shake them. And you'll get this mix of stuff, right? But over a few minutes, because of differences in buoyancy, the sand will sink and the water rises and they separate. And that's basically a process of differentiation. All the heavy metals and stuff. Go- in fact, you've right, right, right. heard of the phrase like rare earth elements. You have things like palladium and platinum. They're yeah, not rare. The things
0: in your phone. <laughs>
2: the things in your phone, things we need for batteries and catalytic converters and you name it. They're not rare in terms of bulk earth. But most yeah. of that stuff is in the core.
0: Right. And very little oh, is in the crust. Okay. That's why it's called
2: rare earth, as in like the dirt on the top, mm. uh-huh. and and, and, and that, that gets because that stuff, all the heavy metals, sank. You know, the majority of it is nickel and iron, but but most of it is yeah. all the heavy stuff. Most of the heavy stuff sank, which is why, by the way, asteroids are so interesting from a mining perspective, because most asteroids, not all, but most of them were too small to undergo this process of differentiation, which means the heavy stuff and the expensive, valuable stuff is as mixed on the upper portion of it as it is in the interior portion, which means you could land there and gobble up the ground on however you, you would process stuff um, and actually be able to do that much cheaper than having to go dig it out of the core of a planet.
0: So it sounds like there's so much that could have happened in the early history of the solar system. But my question is then, so if we know now that there's obviously been so many things that will have happened over the last few billions of years since the planets all formed and, you know, they some planets got knocked over, some are going backwards, some have impact basins, but how dissimilar do you think that they were day one i mean the the, the, when they first became they went from planetesimals to planets so once they became big enough that we consider them okay this is now you know this is not just proto venus or early venus this is now venus back then how how dissimilar would say mars earth and venus have been and you know were their formation processes similar do you think
2: yeah, I mean, I, again, I'm going to preface all my answers by saying I don't know. But you know <laughs> what? Like, <laughs> none of us. Know. All, all things being equal, yeah, probably they were they were similar. Um, we don't know, yeah. but it has been proposed that because, like I said earlier, volcanism produces prodigious amounts of gas. Mm. Um, there, there's, uh, wait, there's, are there
0: volcanoes on Venus and Mars?
2: Oh boy, are there volcanoes on? on oh. the <laughs> biggest volcano <laughs> we know of in the solar system is on Mars. Oh, sure, yeah, of course, Mars, Venus, yeah, Olympus yeah, Mons, and Venus is a planet that. I, I mean I've I've gone on record saying this many times, I'll say it again. We have no mm. direct evidence for volcanism on Venus. But I would Uh-oh. bet any amount of money that not only are there volcanoes, well, we know there are volcanoes in Venus. We don't have any evidence that it's yeah. volcanically active right now. Right. right. I am, I am convinced as much as I can be about anything that in fact yeah. Venus is volcanically active right now. Right now, and we get Mars quakes, right? Earth. Yeah, you get Mars quakes. Mars is boring. Listen, Mars is like is, yeah, is this a <laughs> cold thing that burned down. Yeah, and people get like, excited about liquid water on the surface, sure. And Venus agree. may never have anything like that. It may always have been terrible, mm-hmm. but Venus may have had oceans. There may have been Venus whales. We don't know that yet. <gasps> we test that as we go and we measure um, specific isotopes of, of particular gases in the Venus atmosphere, which is what a mm-hmm. mission that was selected last year called Da Vinci is going to do, A NASA mission called Da Vinci, mm-hmm. um, later this decade because it turns out by measuring noble gases you can actually infer a lot about what the inventory of planets history is and what what it was born with and what it lost um but in terms of how they started off early on there's there's two things that govern whether you have an atmosphere and i'm simplifying here one is how big are you like what's your your gravity your mass and the other is how far or close are you to your star and basically what it comes down to is you imagine you know gas molecules and you know atoms come out and they're physical objects they have mass and if you are relatively small, and therefore your gravity field is relatively weak, and/or you're relatively close to the sun, which is particularly in its early life putting in a huge amount of extreme UV radiation, but even now putting in a lot of solar wind, you have a really hard time holding on to really light elements like helium and hydrogen. Sure,
0: they're gone. They're gone. If you if you are here.
2: if you are big and/or far away, it becomes mm. easier to hold on to gases, and certainly in the case of the really big bodies like. Jupiter and Saturn, the reason they are helium, hydrogen rich is because it's a combination of they are both massive. They're able to Mm. hold on to that hydrogen envelope and they're far from the sun. They're not that much assailed by the solar wind. Yeah. Earth has no, it's not nearly big enough to hold on to hydrogen or helium at the distances of the sun, but it is clearly able to hold on to things like H2O and O2 and nitrogen. Right. right? So it really comes down to how big you are and, and 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 basically how cold you are or, or how close you are to the sun. And
0: I guess magnetic field as well, right? Because I think... That,
2: no, yeah. and this nah, gets ooh, really complicated.
0: Oh, okay, I'm wrong. Really Whoa, hold so on yeah, to your Oh, th- This is interesting.
2: Okay, okay, oh, we're, we're taking another diversion. I'm trying to remember to go back hot. to the previous path I was on. But anyway, yeah,
0: Venus... <laughs> we're in the seventh
2: circle here. <laughs> Venus has no magnetic field. And it has an atmosphere but, 90 times more dense than Earth. Oh, true, so tell me why magnetic field is necessary for, for holding up an atmosphere. In fact, oh we God, now I know can't. we now know with pretty big error bars that the rate uh-huh. at which Venus is losing its atmosphere is about the same as the rate at which Earth is losing its atmosphere, which is about the same the rate at which Mars is losing its atmosphere. Mm. And the canonical story we, we've been told, right, is that basically Mars' magnetic field shows send That surely probably played a role, but it's probably way mm-hmm. more complicated than that. And I'm beginning to form the view, I think we are kind of moving as a community towards the view that at least in part, what matters is not just how you're losing it and the rate at which you're losing it. Can you replenish it? Right. And the atmosphere comes from volatiles inside lava, which in turn comes from melting the planet's interior. Mm. So if a planet's Uh big and or volatile rich, meaning it had a lot of this, like 98% of Earth's water is locked in hydroxyl molecules in the mantle. Yeah, it's just a thin scum of stuff on the outside of what we call our oceans. And talking <laughs> of scummy, like thin layer, yeah. average ocean depth on Earth is like five kilometers, right? But there's an ocean under, we think, Ganymede's ice shell that's 900 kilometers deep, right? Mm. So... Like, you know those movies where the aliens come in that, suck the water out of the planet? They're stupid because yes. if you if you were aliens and you wanted water for some reason and you couldn't somehow synthesize it or gobble up a nebula, you go out to the outer planets. You don't come all the way into the sun's gravity well to this planet. If
0: you're because. coming to this solar system, like, don't get it why?
2: from Earth. The only reason they're coming here is to eat us, And I don't know why they would do Absolutely. that because presumably they could regenerate artificial meat. Anyway, the point but is yeah. magnetic fields may not matter. And in fact, recent work has suggested that magnetic fields could even potentially speed up the rate at which you lose your atmosphere. Oh. Oh, no. because, I've been because, lying
0: because you talks.
2: ionize the air and you accelerate it down your magnetic field lines and you actually lose it to space uh, right? i've been brilliant.
0: propagating misinformation guys
2: I'm, I'm here to drop the truth bombs on you okay the moon is darker <gasps> than they've been than big yeah. oh, lying. <laughs> <this is, laughs> big big <laughs> but wait and, would and, that and, also and the biggest reason the, the, why mars doesn't have an atmosphere today may at least in part perhaps as much matter as uh, or what may matter is at least as much as the magnetic field or lack thereof is how much stuff it's able to degas. And right. if it's just ran out of heat early on, you can still generate melt, you can still produce magma, but it just doesn't reach the surface. It's just, it gets stuck inside the, the planet body and, yeah. it, and it may slowly degas up solidly through the solid body, but it's not pumping teratons of stuff into the air. It means that even if Mars, which we know was very volcanically active at some point in its life, I mean, it's not just the big volcanoes, it's these vast lava plains. But it's very likely, I think, personally at least, that the reason Mars has no atmosphere today or barely an atmosphere is much less to do with the magnetic field and much more to the fact that it's able to replenish or it was unable to replenish its atmosphere yeah. through through huge large-scale volcanism, which explains to the fact that even if the rate at which you lose... let's say Mars may have had 1.5 bar atmosphere or were room to pressures around 1 bar and now it's six millibars, right? So let's say it's functionally lost one and a half bars of atmosphere. Earth has one bar of atmosphere, but it's presumably had volcanism going for a long time, its entire life, and therefore probably not challenged by having to replace a bar and a half of lost atmosphere. And Venus is 90 bars. It won't notice if it loses a bar and a half of atmosphere to space because it's like, whatever, I've (laughs) 90 left over.
0: Could it also be an argument for maybe Venus being volcanically active, that it is...
2: But, or is it just it has
0: so much atmosphere, no one but, would notice.
2: But how the heck? But but
0: it's like why does it have so much
2: atmosphere?
1: Where does that atmosphere come from?
2: It's like, yeah. so not what, yeah, hydrogen. Yeah, helium. Yeah.
1: Well, let, let let cut some Mister Thickey here. What <laughs> on earth? What 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 causes volcanic activity in the first place? You know, what, how is could you know the core? That, yeah. So what what's yeah? So what what is it about the cause that's causing this volcanic activity? Right, so this, why just, would it stop? Why would it pause? Why okay. would it? Yeah. Okay, so there's there's two things that govern how much. So, volcanism comes from, and I'm going
2: to use the term volcanism to kind of capture both the intrusive and extrusive stuff. Sometimes volcanism we use... Not necessarily
0: vulca- just volcanoes. The stuff that's
2: on the surface, exactly. Right. But so, so, you know, processes, right? Producing sure. melt, magmogenesis. Um, there's two things. One is, um, well, there's there's two primary sources of heat. There's how much heat you're born with, and then there's how much heat you have in terms of radiogenic element decay. Now, one might reasonably start from the perspective that all things be equal, which they're not, the protoplanetary disk might have been chemically similar. And therefore, Mercury, Mars, Earth, and then Moon, Venus started off with broadly comparable compositions. For a long time, people thought it's probably not true. More recent work has suggested, in fact, it might be certainly a paper literally last week was suggesting that Earth was born with most of its water, that every two years now, there's a paper coming out saying basically this, whereas we used to think there was a veneer of comets at the end. Now I think we're kind of moving towards the idea that probably the overall bulk abundances of planets are probably largely the same. Which stands to reason, by the way, it means that all things being equal, which they're not, if you get a certain <laughs> amount of volcanoes in a period time on Mars, you might expect to get a similar amount on Earth, right? But and Earth's this relates
0: to, and this relates to what we were talking about with the formation process—how different they were in the first place. Right? They
2: all—they may—the the biggest difference is how big they are. But they probably functionally, I mean, there's lots of detail I'm skipping and even small changes in other uh, uh, elements like carbon, you know, could have a profound impact upon the geology. But functionally, they're made of magnesium and silicon and oxygen and iron. and, And they all group together and they start to differentiate. Actually, we know... Again, I'm being grossly oversimplistic here, but we know <laughs> the, right. atmos- the spectral signatures of the atmospheres of many stars are similar to our own, mm-hmm. which means yeah. that the, st- the most common standard rock you get on Earth is called basalt. And I can guarantee you, there's basalt on a planet a billion light years away. It's like the most sort of, generic rock you get.
0: Yeah.
2: So, basically, and for our you-
0: planets, it's only now that they've kind of turned into the sort of uh, Wes Anderson, Royal Tenenbaum siblings that have all become estranged from each other.
2: Because of all these unique conditions. <laughs> exactly. And we don't know all those unique conditions or how they interplay. play. Yeah. And, and that's a big part of what people are doing what we call exoplanetary science, trying to understand how, what kinds of exoplanets are there, how many are there, how, what are the different paths the planet can take. But just in terms of the atmosphere and the volcanism, um, you certainly get, so if you look at the amount of heat that comes out of the ground, overwhelming orders of magnitude of the heat on the ground itself, like you go outside to the the, the footpath, that's from the sun. Solar radiation overwhelms anything else, but it only penetrates like this far into the ground. So it has no role geologically, in terms of what's driving the interior of the planet. The sun, planet doesn't care, which means you can have what's called a rogue planet, planet ejected early on from its planetary system it forms in, and it can have all most of the same processes, it just would do so under perpetual night. But in the case of, say, Earth, Earth's mantle, where all those, most of those radiogenic elements live, Earth's mantle is huge, like 80% the volume of the planet or something. It's, It's huge. That's a lot of stuff that you can produce heat in to melt. Mars is much, much smaller than Earth, and its mantle is much, much smaller. And its surface area is much greater per volume because of the nature of stuff scaling. Same with Mercury. And what we see in their planetary histories recorded on their surfaces, and one thing I've skipped over is how we can estimate relative times. It has to do with craters, and that really is a conversation for another day. But we can at least build together like you know, a rough framework or a structure to understand the history of each of these worlds, with the exception of Venus, which is really complicated. But even then, we know that relatively recently, it's had a lot of volcanic activity. We know that from the surface in terms of the lava, as we see, and there aren't that many craters, and there are no giant impact basins the way there are on the other worlds. And what that basically says is the reason you're getting volcanism is because you have that leftover heat on earth about half of the heat coming from the ground is leftover heat from when it was born four and a half billion years ago it's still there it's still warm because it's very well insulated the core is well very well insulated by the mantle and the other half ish is heat coming from the mantle itself as you have the decay of radiogenics and you just have a large planet with a stonkingly big magma or big mantle (laughs) And that's how Earth is able to remain volcanically active. But even then, I've told you about these large igneous provinces. They're pathetically small compared (laughs) to our inferences for how much crust was produced early on. In fact, in the case of Mars, we think most of Mars's crust was produced in 100 million years and probably in the first few tens of millions of years. Meaning that the amount of, like I've described these lavas, these large igneous provinces to you, I want you to actually think biblical when I talk about early crustal production rates on planets. Where you were talking about resurfacing 10% of the planet, you know, in a few thousand years. Like nothing on Earth, nothing in Earth's record is preserved of that time. We infer it on the basis of what we see on Mars and on Mercury, for example, in particular. And so the idea is that why, why do you have volcanism, let's say, that might be continued today on Venus and on Earth and not on Mars? It's just because they're much, much larger. And they've much, much more radi. And the, the actual absolute volume of radiogenics is much higher. That yeah. doesn't mean that Mars isn't volcanically active. By the way, I'm positive Mar- Mars will erupt again. But what probably happens is if you were to graph, I know we, you may not be able to see this, but like if we do uh, amount of stuff coming out of the ground on the y-axis and time on the x-axis, starts off really, really high, and then quite quickly, you know, bottoms out, and then for the longest time has almost. An asymptotic curve here, which is to say that even the volcanism, the rates of volcanism we see on Earth today, are are former or are, are their shadows of what they once were.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. Well, well, so, if the radiogenics, all these sort of radioactive particles, are in there, so some planets if they're born in a protoplanetary disk that doesn't have radioactive elements in it or at least as many of them yes or as many of yeah. in, in them because yeah. that mean that they don't really really have the, the kind of volcanic activity that our planets do
2: that's that is essentially the inference and one of the ways we could try and test that is you know people would you know with very advanced telescopes for example like James Webb looking to see if we can get any evidence or information about the planets atmosphere Um, You know, do we see any changes in in
0: planetary atmospheres?
2: So planetary atmospheres are extremely important. I mean, they're just, (laughs) let's let's, let's be clear. As (laughs) as you look at the size of the planet, it's a very thin, it's like the the skin of an apple, right? It's not the bit everyone Uh gets excited about. Okay. The (laughs) apple, eating the apple is in the meat. But certainly, yes. the atmosphere is important, and particularly for things like life. You know, it, we would not fare so well if we had no atmosphere, or if we had a Venus-like atmosphere. Um, but but yeah. you know, and the interaction
0: between between atmosphere and, and geology important. is huge. And, and that's,
2: that's well, as we covered, you know, where the, biosphere
0: is. the and as we were talking about about how Venus's atmosphere was was affected by its geology. So absolutely, I mean, there's yeah, clear yeah. interplay.
2: It, it, absolutely. And, and, and actually, unpicking that is extremely important to kind of understand. It's also worth pointing out, by the way, another sidebar, the atmospheres of Venus and Mars are dominantly CO2. Now, the amount of atmosphere is vastly different, but they're both CO2 dominated, which probably mm. tells Uh-oh. us that Earth's early atmosphere was CO2 dominated as well. That might be yeah. the standard atmosphere you get. As a function of the availability yeah. of carbon and oxygen inside a body as it forms. Um, but to exactly that point, Matt, you know, big question we have is what in fact a lot of work has been done, is being done by people far brighter than I am to try and understand. Can you draw any, can you make any prediction of the composition of, a, of an exoplanet on the basis of what its star is made of, which we can tell on the basis of its yeah. spectra? And uh, the shorter yeah. answer is is the the the, the very <laughs> short, pithy answer is probably maybe. The long answer is no, um, <laughs> yeah. and that's because chemically, you know, these Science. are chemical engines. Yeah, right. Nature doesn't care, um, but you could. I think it's, it's certainly we know that the amount of what's called metallicity in a star, which is the amount of stuff heavier mm-hmm. than than helium, is what the hell the astronomers call things like carbon and metal. But the point is, yeah. uh, and xeon and, and metal. As you as you have higher metallicity, which you, again you can see in the in the, planets, in the star's atmosphere, there's a good mm-hmm. chance that you're going to find more planets, because it means there's more stuff than just hydrogen, helium, lithium available in the planetary disk. And that's borne out by the fact that planets with high metallicity are ones, or stars with high metallicity are the ones that we have found most of the planets uh, orbiting.
0: Yeah. And that's one of the things that I love about planets, because I, I often talk about this when I do outreach talks and stuff, that stars are so much more predictable. We have a much better understanding of, okay, here's a star, this is its temperature, and we can figure out things like age and size and all of these things. There's, there's a much better mapped out sort of formula of if these are some of its parameters, then we can deduce that these are some of the other is, parameters. Is that
1: a measurement and, bias though? Is it just the fact that we've been able to measure them rather than the fact that that's the nature of them?
0: Well, we've just been, we've been, we've studied star for so long and we have a good understanding. About sort of internal processes that that drive stars and like why do they shine? We know these nuclear processes. We harness the, the power of the atomics, um, unfortunately, um, but but planets do not play ball in the same way. They're not that easy to categorize. You can't be like, oh look, okay, here's a, a planet of this mass and radius, therefore it's probably this old or like this is its chemical composition. Stars are much more. Predictable in that way, um, it's, it's but I love true. that about planets.
2: It's definitely true. Yeah, I mean, you can you can infer a lot from a planet, from a star on the basis of its size, and you can yeah. figure out where it is on the main sequence. And yeah, it's true. That, I mean, the chemical processing a star does is is astonishing. I mean, you know, nuclear yeah. synthesis yeah. and stuff is incredible. But yeah, you're right. They, they are they are they are tend to be more simplistic yeah. than the kinds of outcomes you can have in in a planet. And a good, here's a good example yeah. of that. So it turns out that the most common size object we've detected by the way just another sidebar often people describe earth-like <clears throat> and they'll say oh we've found an earth-like world yeah. we are we are beginning to find earth-sized worlds of which venus yeah. is one venus is 95 percent the radius of earth we have never found an earth-like world and anyone's saying they have is That's lying true. because yes. first we would have to know that it's got you know 20 celsius average temperature in Augusta, and we don't yeah. have the i am positive there are earth-like worlds are there but we haven't de- we have and we may even Definitely. have recognized it, but we haven't determined them to be like that yet um, yeah. But basically, the, the, the most common kind of world on the basis of size is what, what is colloquially referred to by astronomers as mini-Neptunes. There, and There's actually this kind of perception that there is a gap between the largest known rocky worlds. And the way we know a rocky a r- world is rocky is, to be sure, you need two measurements. You need a measurement of its size or its radius, which we can get through uh, what's called the transit photometry method when it passes in front of its star. And you also need to know its mass, which we can get through what's called the radial velocity method, which is an effect of the... The, the, actually the absorption spectrum of a star. But the point is, once you have an idea as to how big a star, a bit, big a planet is and what, and what its size is and its mass, you can work out its density. And then you can begin to say, is it gas or is it rock? Because they have vastly right. different densities. And of course, you're taking the whole bulk thing. So you, you have no prescriptive information as to how big the iron core, presumably is iron, would be versus anything else. But the mini-Neptunes are complicated. They're bigger than the biggest super-Earths but they're smaller than the big, definitively giant planets that are gaseous.
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: And it's led to this view that there's sort of two potential explanations to explain what a mini-Neptune is. Um, And they may not be mutually exclusive. And one is that they are basically a smaller version of a giant planet. Um, And right now we don't know what the inside of Neptune and Uranus look like. We don't know if it's a solid object or if it's a blend or whatever. Uh, But the other possibilities are they actually may be Earth-sized objects that have half happened to have grown a much thicker atmosphere as a consequence of say where they were born or the energy of their star right that combination again of mass and distance to your star and it, and it just maybe it may be happenstance there isn't as many Neptune in the solar system and definitely there's an element of observational bias here because we are going to be presupposed to detecting worlds that are bigger or closer in and orbit faster because orbital period is higher, or whatever but certainly Mini Neptune seems to be a real thing. We don't see an example of it in the solar system, but maybe if, through some reason, Earth had formed farther out, and it had gathered some thick, gaseous envelope, but not as much to make it as a full-on Neptune or Uranus or, or, or bigger again, it may be. It may be what we would now call a mini Neptune. It could be both of these. So, understanding what these worlds are is extremely hard. And, and to your point, then you cannot look at the radius alone and say it's definitively exactly. this. It Whereas with a exactly. star you can. You know it has yeah. to be fusion, basically.
0: And and I mean with the stars, well, hello, look at our solar system. There are a bunch of planets. So just because you know what a star is doing doesn't mean that you know what its planets are doing, because you can have such a range of planets as well.
2: Absolutely. And also we don't know much yet about how planetary systems form, why yeah. things are in the position they are, why you know, is there a particular reason why the giant planets are where they are. Um yeah. we don't know that much then, about the Kuiper belt or the scattered disk beyond. We don't know that there might yeah. not be large rocky worlds farther out in deep space but still gravitationally bound to the sun. So yeah. these are basic things is, we can't answer.
0: Something I often talk about um when when talking to the general public and stuff is also, you know, what we say are like, oh, two planets that are similar. That's already making quite a lot of assumptions, because then if you say in our solar system, we have three sort of or four Mercury terrestrial type Mm -hmm. planets, inner planets, but they are not really the same, are they? I mean, they're in the same category, but they're not. And I mean, even when you talk about things like climates and what the environment is physically on a planet, even if you just look at one planet, Earth, you've seen icebergs, you've seen the rainforest, you've Mm -hmm. seen deserts even the conditions on a single planet can vary so hugely depending on where it is yeah. and then you have different planets that have totally different climates and 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 then you have different ones between differences so the 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 breadth of variation is just enormous
2: it is it's crazy and 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 what's interesting even there is the actual like mars's ice caps because there's a definitive difference in temperature yeah. between its poles and its equator. But Venus doesn't. Venus is because of its very thick atmosphere. Oh, it's yeah. essentially made this, the whole, there's no sort meaningful difference. Between the. radiative transfer. Yeah, of, yeah. It's all the same. There is a difference in temperature with elevation, but not really with latitude. Um, yeah. And in the case of Mercury, there is, uh, there are, there's actually ice deposits in some what we call permanently shadowed craters in Mercury's poles. Yeah. So it again has that, that pole to equator difference in temperature Um, but you're right in movies where you see you know a desert planet or a jungle planet it's very unlikely could
0: just have landed there
2: right exactly right but it's very in dubai and that's that's the thing that's just as valid a a place that was
1: representative of earth in fact more so arguably um than boreal rainforests you know yeah i mean exactly there's that concept isn't there of rare earth and like look at how rare this planet is but you could also flip that on its head and say maybe earth isn't even the best place for life. Maybe there's other planets <laughs> yeah. out there that are, that are ridiculously there's suitable for There's someone that's literally life. paradise yeah, like, where yeah, literally. everywhere
0: is 25 degrees. <laughs> yes.
1: You know, <laughs> like, is, life is just clinging on on Earth. Yeah, but yeah, it's other of really is, like.
2: Overcast. You know, there's definitely this, there is a view that you can have what are called super habitable planets, that you can imagine Earth, but you make it better. You make it warmer. Yeah. You change the sun type so it's a bit more forgiving. Yeah. Chlorophyll might go, or, or whatever the equivalent yeah. chemical might be red, but there are things you can do to actually make things even more clement, and what we do see is that you know earth life on earth has become extremely resilient to these different environments but yeah and like i said earth was not always habitable and will not remain so indefinitely definitely a matter of timing as well
0: If we're customizing, can I vote for reducing gravity just by a tiny fraction so that we have this little light bounce in our step as we like jump up and pick grapes from this luscious club? Apparently,
1: (laughs) apparently it's bad for you, though. Apparently, if you put if you go into a slightly more yeah, slightly heavier gravity, you heal quicker and stuff like that. That was what I was. That was another I'll, podcast. I'll, I'll guest. take.
0: Well, if okay, well, if I'm living here and I'm just bouncing around picking up grapes, then I'm okay with if I get injured, I'll just hang out for a little while. That's okay. No, that's I'll, I'll sacrifice the fair. healing time. So,
2: but here's the thing. Have, oh, but, but unfortunately, if you, Lynn, go to a lower yeah. gravity planet, you could band around new uh-huh. grapes, So Please check that it's not fully heavy metals <laughs> or whatever, right? But the problem is if you so, evolve uranium grapes, it could be uranium grapes, yeah, or some sort of neurotoxic. <laughs> but if you evolve yeah, on a planet no. like that, All Uh things be equal, you'll equilibrate with everything and you won't bound any more than you bound here. And right and now, there's, there are people having a podcast in another planetary system, saying, "Oh, imagine only having 9.8 per yeah. second squared of gravity. Of
0: 20. <laughs> yeah. Imagine how My much we bound. My bones would be so
2: dense. Yeah, and here we are going. <laughs> yeah. I don't bound. I walk no, and shuffle. So that's
0: true. honestly, I think your
2: frame, your whole reference frame, would unfortunately also. You need to go to a place with no gravity.
0: I will go and and visit. Okay. Here's here's a question that I I've been wanting to ask as well. Let's say uh, magic wand. Um, I've just gone to Mars or Venus. You can choose. I'm assuming you're going to choose Venus. Um, And we cut out a big, huge, beautiful slab off the surface. And then you get to play with it in your lab at home. Like you, we take it back to earth. You get to study it in whatever detail. What would you look at? Like what, what would you look at first?
2: Um, Let me preface this by saying that's something that I think I would like to see in my life, in my lifetime. We actually go and do sample return. You know, we are doing, yeah, It would be technically challenging. Maybe not
0: a big one kilometer chunk, but. (laughs) No,
2: probably not that much. But here's the thing, depending on what's happened in in terms of the history of Venus, that actually may not be all that telling. If there were older rocks, they may be now sufficiently deep that they are functionally out of reach. So what I would look at is I'd look at, it turns out you can tell an awful lot about where, at least on earth, where melt or magma has come from as a function of its trace elements chemistry. And that's the first thing we would do. And in fact, it turns out that if you take a basalt from Hawaii and a basalt from the Cascades and a basalt from the mid-ocean ridge, they all have very subtle differences in the trace element chemistry that you can actually use to back out where they're from. So the first thing we would do would be to look at, assuming that we're talking about a basaltic rock, is what is it made of? What are the relative ratios of, of, you know, it's these trace elements. That would be extremely important. Um, and then look at the crystals and try and work out what that tells you. Age dating. We could do radiogenic age dating the way we do on Earth all the time. Lead, lead, uranium, thorium. We could work out how old the surface is because we have virtually no information on that. So there's a ton of really important things we could do. But if I, if we were to ever go back really far in Venus's history, which you can do on Mars easily because so little has happened. You can take a rock and you can be confident that it's about four billion years old can't do that on venus it would be like landing on earth and picking a place where would you go to learn about earth's history there aren't many places you can go but you could certainly learn a lot about its recent history you could definitely do that
1: yeah well that is the point i mean i guess there are places on earth that you could go where at least you could have an attempt to get slightly further back that you can get on other places on earth
2: Oh, for sure yes exactly and, and, and so could.
1: could you i mean presumably we're nowhere near mapping venus to that quality where we could do a similar trick you know actually the maps for venus that we have are not bad they're not complete they're not great
2: they're big questions i can't answer because the data but we got some pretty good data 30 years ago global scale data of the surface and people did map it now some of the conclusions i think are questionable and that's part of what I'm working on in my day-to-day life. Um, but there are places where we think at least they are the locally oldest materials. Um, I tend to view them as being much younger than other people think, but they are locally relatively old and they would definitely be places that we want to go and take samples from. The problem is that that kind of terrain unit is called tessera. It's the word used for, for this set of stuff on Venus. It's, we think, <clears throat> very rough and and probably not safe at Lander scale. And so until and if, which we will now get, thankfully, in the next 10 years with these new missions, we will get high-resolution radar images of this kind of ground. It'll become much easier then to design a lander to be resilient to the shape of, of, the, of the rocks and the distribution of rocks and the slopes and stuff. Um, landing there, even not bringing that home, landing there with a miniaturized lab like we've done for Mars. But of course, because of the temperature pressure conditions, this is going to take more money, a lot more money. Because Mars, is it's not easy to do what well, Curiosity and Perseverance have done, but it is technically less challenging than doing the same thing on Venus. Even though I think personally, there's a more compelling science reason to do it for Venus. Mm. The reason humans have spent so much time and money investing in Mars is because it is relatively easier to do. Not easy, but relatively <laughs> easy. You don't, yeah. It's easy to keep electronics cool, uh, <clears throat> warm with a heater. It's very hard to keep them cool in the case of Venus. Um, but certainly, if we were able to go and land on one of these so-called Tessera regions, they are at least the locally oldest stuff there are hypotheses we could test there. I'd love to know what that stuff is made of. And that is one of the places I would go. Does so it get you back a billion years? I don't know.
1: But it, it's man. definitely worth doing. What What about, you know, the, this this whole, like, the vibrating the planet and banging it like a bell so that you can see, you know, like Insight is doing and things like that, you know. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so, like, that works to a point. But, like, so Insight is a passive system, right? It doesn't have the ability to make a noise. And they were relying, they have been relying on, you know, bolides, things hitting the atmosphere or hitting the ground, and natural quakes. And, and we know Mars is tectonically active, and I don't think anyone seriously thought it wasn't, but now we have a much better idea of like what that rate is, what the processes and mechanisms- Yeah, but how much. Be. Yeah, exactly. Um, the biggest quakes in the solar system, with the exception of when you get a giant impact, are probably quakes associated with seduction on Earth because of the nature of how it works and how big a quake you could make. You could probably make moderately big quakes on Venus, Yes. Um, the problem is, you need to be there for a while. You know, that's the, to get a sense of what the kind of background base level is. And this, the temperatures really kill you. It's the pressure we can build. We can build stuff against 990 bars. But it's the temperature and, and, and there's been in the last year, some really exciting work out a NASA Glenn, for example, in, in Ohio, where they'd be developing silicon carbide transistors and things that are designed to operate healthily and fully at ambient Venus temperature. And as that technology goes on further, you know, we'll see in the next, I'm hoping, 10 years, we'll be able to build a lander that it won't be some sort of steampunk thing. It won't be some sort of, you know, Victorian <laughs> you see these ideas. It'll be a regular lander and it won't have any cooling. It will be designed yeah. to function at those temperatures. Okay. Wasn't you can that imagine that what spin-off. To,
0: wasn't that what happened when the, the 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 Soviet lander, it didn't last very long?
2: It lasted. So this is, I might, you, you can see in my background picture where we're zooming, you, I have a background kind of my art expression of what one of the Venera Soviet landers looked like sitting yeah. on one of the planes. Yeah. yeah. Those things are still there, by the way. They're made of titanium, so they haven't melted. They've, they've probably, they've probably gone go on some sort of tarnishing, I'm guessing. Yeah. And certainly all the electronics are dead, but they're physically, there's no reason they're not physically intact. They've only been there a few decades. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the longest lasting one was 127 minutes. Um, now, to be fair, it actually lasted longer, but we got 127 minutes of data because the data were relayed to the orbiter, which was overflying. And once it goes out of right, range, right, it right. can't send stuff home. So it probably lasted a little longer, but not more, maybe an hour. Not, right? much. not not days.
0: I feel so bad picturing this rover like, Ooh, save me <laughs> i then
1: buckling, slowly under just
0: the horrendous...
1: boiling to death. Yeah, what well, I mean, Da Vinci? Oh, da Vinci's God. not supposed to last that much longer, is it? It's, no, it it's... won't. So Da Vinci's going to
2: go through the atmosphere. It's an hour through the atmosphere, we think is how long the, the descent will take. In fact, as Da Vinci is going to take an image of of one of these tesserated regions, um, and then it's going to it's going to fall. Uh, it's not required to survive the landing. It probably will because these things are really engineered. This is a big, you know, titanium pressure ball meter across. This thing is strong. But the the electronics are not going to be cooled much beyond, you know, I don't know. I think people are forecasting, you know, this thing, if it, if it doesn't last until the surface, we're still going to get unbelievable science from it. But, you know, there's, the, there's a non-zero chance. And it's also a ball. It's got no legs or anything. There's a non-zero chance this thing hits and rolls, and then we get a photo, like you know, it might be at a jaunty angle, of a photo of the horizon, you know, which would be the first such photo in 40 years. Um, but yeah, it will quickly expire then because it is it is not designed to yeah. to live those We've
0: been so spoiled by all the beautiful photos from
2: Mars. Mars is easy. Space but cold it's is much easy. easy. You just, yeah. and, and, and it has a, it's a nuclear powered battery in the back. It's generating yeah. heat. They can run into keep the to keep easy the chassis easy. warm. You know, it's not having a nice cold
0: winter walk.
2: It's exactly (laughs) as Mark Wine did it in the Mars and he put one into his rover and drove around. Yeah, no problem. Uh, But you, 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 and people propose using nuclear systems actually to cool the rovers on Mars or on Venus, but that technology just doesn't exist yet and it's expensive to develop. It's probably not physically impossible, it's it's expensive. And really, what it comes down to is I think these new missions are probably going to go give us this new. They're going to jumpstart, I hope, at least a new era of Venus exploration that will then show Absolutely. people it's worth investing in the kinds of technology yeah. to, to ultimately, I'm sure, there is no physical reason we can't don't have a Venus rover, but it's going yeah. to be technologically yeah. expensive and difficult to develop. 2030s? Mm.
0: Ballpark? 2040s. 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 40s,
2: yeah. be lucky to
0: 2030s see. design, 2040s.
2: 2040s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, 20, late 2020s, early 2030s, um, new missions to Venus potentially yeah. a new lander maybe in the late 2030s the 2040s crossed. then I mean it just depends on a bunch of things depends on you know the availability of the rockets that are you know
0: and, and the motivation well
1: uh, yeah I was going to say if something amazing comes out of Da Vinci there might be a massive rush to yeah. go to That's go oil yeah. found yeah. on yeah. Venus <laughs> I know yeah it's so much easier
2: to go and dig it there or fusion fuel I mean yeah. look, exactly dinosaur any, juice <laughs> yeah you know, we could uh, I, I joke with people This I want to be very clear I just joke but most limestones on Earth are made of the shells of dead creatures. So I'm yeah. like, I can't wait to find the first limestone beds on Venus from those shallow marine seas Ooh. they had before the climate catastrophe.
0: What, okay, no um, evidence contra- that ever controversial question then. Limestones uh, more likely on Mars or on Venus?
2: Um, well, you, so you can produce limestones um, abiotically. And Organic I think there's definitely, limestone. yeah, <laughs> you know, Or I, I personally don't think Mars is ever inhabited. Or if it was, it was never mm. to very much. If there's any life on Mars, my view is that it's hundreds of meters down, which no amount of yeah. drilling is going to get until the humans are there. Um, yeah. that's my own personal view and i also don't think there's anything living on venus there may have been if, well, if you a... were to ask to me to to conjecture completely like beyond the realms of any kind of defense mm-hmm. of science then i would pick venus because it's an earth yeah yeah planet.
0: if if i ask more like there was on one which one do you think it was <laughs> i don't it, think yeah.
2: mars ever had i don't think it had seas. No. it may have had wet ponded craters for a while
0: yeah swamps you know?
2: Yeah. But this is,
0: thing, you know, we had this, uh, we had this um, on our episode with Jessica Abbott about um, biology um, perspective. And one of the conclusions that we sort of talked about was that life in the universe, like bacteria type life, like simple life, totally, probably. That feels very reasonable that that could be um, widespread in the universe. Intelligent life, like sort of life with organs <laughs> and like skin and stuff like that. That's really that's a bigger jump. There's a bigger jump from zero to bacteria than bacteria to like mammals, let's say.
2: I mean, certainly that, the that idea, was at least
0: our our guesstimation.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you look at the Cambrian explosion, we know that Earth has been inhabited for at least three point four billion years old. We think, I suspect, right. many people suspect longer, but of course, the record isn't there. Um, but complex life with organs, organelles, right. with the bo- different body forms, um, mm-hmm. they've been only around for five hundred forty million years.
1: Which
2: is so nothing. for. For almost three billion years, this planet had just like single cell yeah. stuff popping along.
0: And that's the thing. And, you know, to, to uh, shoehorn my pet subject of exoplanets back in as well. I mean, it's not that often probably that planets are blessed with such a stable environment for a long period of time. Not necessarily.
2: That, there is there is a big topic or a big focus uh, discipline called dynamic habitability, and that's exactly the topic. Mm, it's like exact, what yeah. conditions do you need or not need for yeah. habitable conditions to be sustainable over long enough yeah. periods of time mm. for for
1: abiogenesis for the yeah. generation it's of like- life from non life. I mean it might the, only the be race. feasible in certain parts of the galaxy, mightn't it? In the actual galactic yeah, people yeah. have uh, proposed yeah. too that if you want you don't be too close because there's too much radiation,
2: you don't be too far away because there isn't
1: enough star right. forming matter
2: for your metallicity to be high enough to produce planets. Absolutely. There could yeah. be a stellar neighborhood where it happens. But you yeah. know what? I'm positive that all those things, those ideas are wrong because it's probably <laughs> far more complicated <laughs> than we think. It's probably yeah. much, much more complicated than we think. I, I
0: mean, very these
1: much are
2: like useful frameworks to start.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think you, yeah. you, you've kind of demonstrated it several times in our chat that science is so complicated that even accepted ideas and accepted kind of frameworks, they, they come and they go very, very yeah. rapidly. And and I've, I guess I, I guess it's, we we may have to finish it here because we've borrowed you for an hour and a half here. For- <laughs> I do need to go
2: eat lunch before my next meeting, yeah. but,
1: but I've also I really enjoyed it.
2: And I'm always happy to come back. Yeah. We've only always- Oh, oh, surface, so.
1: i I've definitely have to get you back because yeah. yeah you you are racing along with some unbelievably interesting <laughs> thing and, and, and I, I i need some time to to soak it all in and, and uh, <laughs> we need a part let's, two we need let's a part do two let's do
0: let's do uh why is venus better than mars
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's, it's and just a, okay, like a it's,
0: smackdown <laughs> it's
2: an earth-sized world why would you look at a small yeah, nugget when you have a big earth-sized exactly. world end off that's yeah. it size alone yeah. End of.
0: And honestly, like with the with, with Astro, I feel like so many of us who study Astro, or I feel like so many of us go from, you know, as kids, it's like, don't be stupid. Of course, aliens don't exist. That's like ghosts. And then you learn about science. You're like, oh my God, maybe aliens exist. Maybe life. I mean, there are so much. And then you think about what actually would be needed for intelligent life to evolve. And you're like... Yeah, I might not be super likely.
2: <laughs> but, yeah, it's, but it's almost <laughs> depressing. <laughs> but you know what? Though? Yeah. I I am convinced that they're intelligent. Like as evinced by saying, you know, creatures with society and radio mm-hmm. and space travel and atomic power. Yeah, I'm positive that they exist throughout the galaxy. I because of the sheer somewhere. number of worlds, it seems extremely yes. unlikely to be that they don't. The problem is yeah. the temporal aspect. Mm. If a civilization exactly. lasts a million years, which is very unrealistically long. We could miss each other by five million years, and all we might get if we had the ability to go to different solar systems, which we probably will never have. But if we did, we may find Mm -hmm. relics or weird radioisotopes in their soil or an artifact on the moon. That's all that's left. So the likelihood of actually communicating with anybody. But you know what? I'll, I'll leave you with this. I think at least it's possible that the way we might discover that we're not alone, at least this is, I think, an exciting possibility. We'll get to the point in the future where we may be able to get low-resolution images of exoplanets, and that's a long way away, and that's an extremely tall order. But being able to detect lights on the night side of a planet, wouldn't that be something? (gasps) Yeah, Even if they were so far cities. away, they could never talk. Yes.
1: Them. Couldn't it be like photo, you know, um, you know, l- like jellyfish and things like that? Well, so so <laughs> Like
0: bioluminescent. And, uh, bio hey,
1: so that's first the off, light. you'd have to work out
2: what wavelength it is. You'd have to work out, is it, is it steady mm-hmm. or not? Is it forest fires? Does the distribution of those lights change yeah. through time? You is know, there like an automatic, years?
0: you know, where at six o'clock all the lights come on?
2: Yeah, maybe they're <laughs> very energy efficient. But I think you could certainly look at... Things like that and see how those things, if the positions of those things on the repeated orbits doesn't change. Yeah. That's pretty clear that they're immobile. Oh, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. And then sort you could also look for combustion signatures. products in
2: the atmosphere. Yeah. You would look for things like exactly technosignatures. But I think yeah. it, it's not beyond the realms of possibility. That might be not through finding some microbial fossils from our sample we brought up, yeah. but actually finding ev- some kind of evidence of a non naturally occurring signature of some kind.
1: Yeah. Or, or or not. Yeah. yeah. A radio signal would be nice. Yeah. yeah. The only problem is,
2: like, even now. You know this pop I mean, of the pops. But if you from... grew up watching, you know, I mean, if you saw a movie Contact, it's idea like you a big radio <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. That doesn't exist anymore because now most TV is broadcast via radio, via microwave, which yeah. is beam from trans- transmitter to transmitter. It's not going into space anymore. So yeah,
0: you
2: know, and even then, once you get beyond like I don't know, twenty or thirty light years or something, that stuff is diffused so much that you can't pick it out of the background noise. Yeah, that's yeah. so. In other words, picking up alien TV signals is not a good way of doing it. Which means they'd have to know <laughs> we're here and be broadcasting stuff probably on broadband. You know.
0: Like well,
1: th- a, well, a, a that- focused beam, more like. Well, that's the thing that Arecibo could do, isn't it? It could actually, it could actually send a yes, signal could, as they well did. as receive. They, did. they sent yeah. it to
2: nearby star systems, and then, and then it fell down because it wasn't maintained, and now we don't, aren't necessarily <laughs> listening for a reply. So.
1: Uh-oh. Can you imagine what's like trying
2: come to have a conversation with someone by messages in a bottle? Now multiply yeah. that by a million. Right? That's how it's. used. <laughs> uh, no.
1: And yeah. now yeah. we're
0: ghosting them. They're going to be so mad. Uh,
1: yeah, ghosting them <laughs> by thousands of years. <laughs> yeah, They're, like well, they're going to come in,
0: over and be like, why didn't you reply? In, in
2: whatever our planetary system is named. They're like, well, we're not going to yeah. send them a Christmas card or whatever. They yeah, right, <laughs>
1: yeah, We
0: were well, going to invite them to well, intergalactic society, but no.
1: <laughs> I hope Paul doesn't ghost me when we, we get part two. I'll be uh, delighted to come back. <laughs> <laughs> and wax further
2: lyrical
1: about planets. Uh, well, yeah. Absolutely. Well, thanks very much for coming on, Paul. These are absolutely genius. Like, I, there's so many. There's, there's some brilliant things in there. My, I, 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 my, my brain is I, I hurting. my brain is blown by that. That whole, <laughs> that whole having that atmospheres are held on by magnetic fields. Oh, no, they're not. I'm, I'm, oh, yeah, of course yeah. not. Oh, no. Wait, I don't even know yeah, why I I even know know what, what I've ever fallen for it. <laughs> yeah, but I'm so
0: glad I- no one's asked me that because I would have been called out.
2: <laughs> I, was a, I was at a meeting last year where I learned all this. And I was, I was chairing oh, a virtual okay, meeting, I was I'm chairing going. a session and I was like, wait, what? And they were like, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's like Venus could lose a bar of atmosphere in a million years and we wouldn't know. I'm like, fuck. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. But, but you know what that is? That is not looking at the geology. And once you factor in things like outgassing, yeah. which is a geological phenomenon, suddenly you realize actually mm. it's about balance and loss and, you know, gain mm. and loss and stuff. So
1: I, I think, yeah. I think I'm going to have to study a little bit more about plate tectonics to get back. Cause that's clearly important, isn't it? In it's terms yeah. of-
2: super important.
1: Yeah, I need to. I need to yeah. get. I need to brush up on that, and we'll do a deep deep dive because okay. I think I can't help feeling that that. Well, <laughs> I, I
2: will leave you with this. We have through, thanks to seismic tomography, we have imaged the old plates that used to be up there. They are now lying down at the core mantle Ooh. boundary. We can see them. Whoa!
1: Yeah, that, oh, used, that oh. used to be ocean Geology
2: Rocks that's down there now, slowly diffusing back into the lower mantle.
1: Uh, uh, that's they- it. I- it kind of reminds me of black holes, the fact that information all that information is being sort of lost <laughs> yeah. forever into yeah. Yeah. the yeah. into the uh oh, oh maybe yes, it's been stored
2: somewhere, we don't know. Anyway, yeah. I'm gonna go get yeah. lunch. Yeah. <laughs> this is great. Thank you for inviting me. The Interplanetary Podcast is
1: alive. There were so many times during that where I was sitting there slightly with my mind blown. But I, I <laughs> we, we we have to get Paul back on. We have to get we have to get all your guests back on, to be honest, Lynn.
0: Absolutely. Uh, I'll, I'll uh, make we, some
1: calls. I need, I need <laughs> well, to if do, you're listening, come back. I, uh, yeah, I need, I need to do some deeper dives on it. I need to do some deeper dives. I always. I we, always we had
0: more questions, didn't we?
1: Definitely have more questions. I definitely have more questions. Um, what, what are you doing? What are you doing at the moment, Lynn? Are you doing anything very cool?
0: Actually, well, only always. Um, I'm actually preparing for um, tomorrow night. I have to uh, go to work at uh, 10 p.m. And then be awake until 10 a.m. because I am going to be doing some remote observations with the Cryos Plus telescope uh, at the VLT in Paranal, in Chile.
1: Whoa! And we're
0: yeah, if humidity doesn't bugger everything up, then we will have some beautiful transits, <laughs> which I've talked about a lot. You know, when the planets go in front of the stars and oh. we get to look at their beautiful atmospheres. But I'm really annoyed at the weather on the other side of the world right now so fingers crossed oh, everyone doesn't, doesn't
1: it look that good i thought it was always uh, dry and chill yeah
0: except for when it's slightly not i mean you know dryness there or humidity there is like oh no i found a water molecule like Somewhere within this uh, 10 kilometer thousand, radius yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. god damn it. but we
0: don't like them we don't like yeah, them yeah. Oh. yeah
1: yeah oh that's oh. awesome is it one of those telescopes that fires a laser into the atmosphere and and an old and adaptive optics. <laughs> yeah,
0: this, oh. this is the, the, the laser guide stars are the ones that we use um, at, at the VLT. The CryRES Plus instrument that I'm using, actually, you know what? Little brainwave, we should totally do an episode on um, on spectroscopy as a Ooh, whole. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because there's so much, you know, for you listeners who are listening to this, you know, we've been talking about astrobiology and when we talk about these, like, sort of more astrophysics science parts of space, You might be sitting there thinking like, well, how do you even know? (laughs) Yeah. How do you actually know that this is like helium or hydrogen or oxygen or whatever that you're finding in space? Because we could just be, it's not like we're going up to the cloud and scooping up a little jar and being like, oh yeah, that's totally hydrogen gas. (laughs) (laughs) And the answer is
1: spectroscopy. Spectroscopy is is definitely... A pretty important subject, isn't it? It's and, and it, it. I guess it's, it's it's actually quite easy to do as well. I mean, you can do spectroscopy as a as an amateur astronomer. Yeah, as well. yeah, 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 yeah.
0: You know, we used to do um, we used to do these uh, um, outreach stuff um, with schools, and the one that we used to do. I mean, okay, first of all, you need like a cylinder of <laughs> of a plasma type gas. So that's like the hard one to do. But everything else you can use from home. Um, we used to get uh, broken up. Like uh, CD CD discs.
1: Ah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. For yeah. those
0: for those Zoomers that are listening, they are these flat circular things that used to play Had music, music on songs. Yeah. I know, crazy. You could get
1: um, uh, you could get about twelve songs on it. That's how massive they were.
0: <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> and
1: uh, I yeah, if you then
0: if you then just smash it up into uh, chunks, and then you take a um, like empty toilet roll, like the cardboard of a, a, a depleted toilet roll. Um, and you put in the broken CD at a sort of angle, then you can actually use that um, to to see spectral lines. Uh, And if you're able to do it in a safe way, you can point at the sun and you can actually see the spectral lines of the sun doing this. Because really, I mean, a CD, it does have like microscopic grooves on it, which is the same principles um, that we use in spectroscopy.
1: Next, you'll be telling me you can do an MRI scan with a couple of speakers and a webcam.
0: (laughs) Shoot it next time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, I'm not going to be doing anything exciting because I'm, I'm working so hard at the moment. Uh, the Spodcats may have noticed that my my output has been slightly shoddy. So normal, n- no, I no, know. Boo, boo. Indeed. <laughs> no. Uh, the the normal service will return once once this term this horrific term two finishes in uh, Easter time. So I'll be back to, to regular once a week. But yes. in the meantime, I am still, we're still doing some pretty cool episodes. Isn't that right? I now
0: mean, time. you're cranking out. You, how many you're episodes still, are we up to now?
1: Yes, it's a lot. <laughs> I <laughs> wonder lot how of, long it
0: would be if you played them all back to back.
1: There's more hours of interplanetary podcasts than I've been alive. <laughs> <laughs> it would take that's a lifetime to, lis- to listen <laughs> to <laughs> them all now. <laughs> Something yeah. like well, that. I think that's the statistic.
0: De- definitely I mean well okay so so listeners uh you know patience is a virtue this is a a, a, a great service that is being uh delivered into your ear holes for free <laughs> yeah. and well I, I guess Spotify or something costs money but you know
1: yeah you can do it on Google Podcasts that would be free or you could it's do true. it via, via the SoundCloud or you could do it via you could do it you can do it from anywhere the, the podcast yeah. even you on YouTube come, you can even go to you YouTube can... and watch it you or can come watch, to Matt's
0: house and put your ear against the window, <laughs> yeah. and at least you get. <laughs> and half hear me of editing it. it. Yeah,
1: that, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That really. <laughs>
0: Just the silence sounds of you clicking the mouse.
1: Yeah, it wouldn't be good. Don't do that. Um, but yeah, yes, please
0: don't go to Matt's house.
1: <laughs> as as always, thanks very much for the patrons who who have been bearing with me and and keeping up the banter in the Discord, which has been very good. I've been enjoying a lot of it. There's some good ones like. A t-shirt with space force with with us with an astronaut punching et that's <laughs> so uh
0: where do i buy these
1: <laughs> i know i know I'm, i actually buy one um but that's it lynn thanks thanks so much for 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 stepping in again and getting that brilliant interview and uh, thank I you think, so much i think it's probably time to say bye bye to the podcast bye bye bye